Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And if you are listening or joining us online, good morning to you too. We are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles, please turn. We will, in one moment, stand and read verses 1 through 20. 20 verses in under three minutes. Would you stand, please? And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty. And some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may not perceive, and hearing they may not hear, not understand lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who When they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches... And the desires of other things enter in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Please be seated. You say, that was long. Well, it wasn't to them when he spoke those words, and I don't think it is so long to us either. The sower, that is the title of this morning's message, the one that sends out the seed. And of course, it is the hope of this pastor that as we consider this passage of Scripture, we reacquaint ourselves with what is involved in sharing the Word of God and what we face Going back to this story in the previous 
chapter, Jesus did not budge off of ministry because of family concerns that really were not justifiable concerns. And having put family interference in its place, he continues to do what he had come to do, among other things, and that is preach the word. He goes lakeside to continue to build up the people, to give them things that they need desperately that they've not heard before, and they've never heard it coming from one such as him. And so looking at verse 1 again, and again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Well, with the lake behind him, it provided a natural amphitheater for him. And the acoustics being as remarkable as they were, he needed no microphone. Everyone could hear him. And this is something that when you go to Israel, uh, Bible teachers like to point out when you get to the lake of Galilee. Uh, Verse 2, Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching. And we pause there. Mark, of course, emphasizes the Lord's emphasis on teaching because the alternative to not being taught is ignorance. And ignorant Christians are delicacy for Satan and a tool in the hands of the world to attack Christ. And so we have this opportunity in this country, in many countries, where the word is is plentiful, but not all places on earth can just... Uh, Find the Bible at their fingertips. Uh, Do we avail ourselves of this blessing? Well, his parables, sort of like uh, window panes. You can go up to it and you see a reflection. You can see your reflection. You can see the reflection of others. And as you move closer, you see beyond the reflections. And you see actually into the, the inside. And there, God's vital truths are more visible, what God has to say about himself and what God has to say about people are clearly seen in the parables if the Spirit be guiding you. If you don't want to know what it's saying, if you are resisting, then you will not receive it. What we discover about parables is that we don't judge parables. They judge us. They get very personal and The interpretation of parables, all of them, must be consistent with what the whole Bible is teaching. And that will help us to understand uh, what Christ is saying. Now here the Lord, he intended that his listeners see themselves in the story. And he's going to do this whenever he gives a parable. That we see ourselves in, in life. And we begin to ask ourselves, who am I in this story? Jesus, for example, telling the story about the Pharisee who was very proud and self-impressed with himself. I tithe, I fast, I do everything right, unlike this tax collector. And then the tax collector he mentioned, of course, was so ashamed of himself, he wouldn't, couldn't even look up. And he just prayed, Lord, forgive me. And so in, in that little story, you say to yourself, who am I? Am I the Pharisee? Or am I more like the tax collector, whom the Lord said went to his place justified, uh, blessed by God, you, you might say. And so we consider what role we play. Is it good 
or not? If it is not, what do we do to get it right? And if it is good, we praise the Lord and we work hard to protect that. So here we have this truth and story format that's like an x-ray. It gets to see something that's on the inside. Another nice thing about parables is that they retain doctrine, teachings, for every age. They don't fade. Here we have one concerning a farmer. So many people know nothing about a farmer, but they know about just throwing seed out, and some of it growing and some of it not growing, and so it, it speaks to everyone. And again, we look at this and we say, if I'm, if I'm in this parable and the word of God is falling on me, how am I responding to that word of God? Am I, am I the wayside path beaten down or am I, you know, the rocky soil that for a moment there I get it and I'm happy with it and I begin to show life and then I wither away and die? Am I... A weed, a patch of weeds and thorns, and the word falls on me and I choke out the word because I've got other interests. Or am I the fertile soil? There's nothing wrong with the seed. In all of these, the seed is fine. It's the soil. It's the ground, which is metaphor for the heart, the human heart. And so in this parable, who am I? Am I the devil-plucked soul? Hard-hearted? Refusing to allow God's word in? Or am I just a shallow one? Under pressure, I just am scorched and that's the end of life for me and in Christ. Or is my faith choked out because I'm too occupied with things in this life to have any real interest in the next life? Or am I the recipient of God's word? That 119th Psalm which is an ode to the word of God. There in one verse 140, the psalmist, who I believe is David, nobody writes like David. I mean, if anybody else could write the 119th Psalm, we'd have, we would have other psalms by them. His name is not on it, but his personality is all over it. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. You've got to love it. You cannot have a nonchalant relationship with Christ. You cannot be so-so with him. You cannot go, he's okay. That's your response. He's not your Lord, but he will be your judge. Your heart's got to be on fire. Even even at low points, when things are not good, we were just singing, he gives and he takes away. It is a prerogative of God Almighty to give and to take away. And it is up to us to go through it. But we love him nonetheless. Because there's something very real about the presence of God in our lives. And others are missing out on this. Unbelievers can go through life. They can face hardship, loss, grief, pain. They can face those things relatively courageously without Christ. And we have to say... I don't want them to outlive me. I have the truth. I know where this is going. Doesn't mean I don't suffer. It doesn't mean I do not weep. As James said, you weep with those who weep. You laugh with those who laugh. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. And if you love God's word, and you live long enough, you're going to have to fight to continue to love God's word. 
the flesh and the world and just time and things and gunk will pile up on you and try to diminish the word. I was in, I'm in this 119th Psalm in my own devotions. I've been there for nine years trying to finish it. <laughs> Not been that long. But there is, uh, there's a section to that Psalm that just, you know, didn't minister too much to me in years gone by, but recently I stopped at it and it was just, yes, Lord, and I just hope I can find it by memory. Um, here it is. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. And then he says, this is my comfort in my affliction. For your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision. Yet I do not turn aside from your law. And going back to that 49th verse. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. I've hoped so much. I had so much hope in God's word to do so much more in my life. And it hadn't happened. And yet, I still love his word. I still have the hope and I'll settle for what has happened. What can Satan do against that? Not much. Well, Jesus, uh, continuing here now, after we finish here in verse 2, where it's being set up, and he taught them many things by parables and said to them, this is the teaching. Verse 4, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. <clears throat> well, the listen is uh, it's emphatic. He's saying, this is serious. I, want you to, I don't want you to miss this. And then the behold, okay, always the drama music that is given to, to what is about to be said, the background music. The initiative is on the sower. The sower is the one that creates this story. We have a sovereign God, and he is the one that initiates. Uh, it's a familiar picture for his audience, not so much for us, but we know enough to be able to follow the story, verse 4, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. We'll find out in verse 15 that the birds of the air are symbolic of Satan in uh, this parab parable. Incidentally, Mark is not big on parables. He has parabolic illustrations, you know, who sows in a, you know, uh, who, or who puts new wine in an old wineskin. That's parabolic illustration, but these are parables. They're whole stories, and he only really has three or four in, in his gospel. Uh, that's, uh, but they're all concerning farming, uh, bringing things to life. Well, the ground, again, and metaphorically, it's the heart. Now, the wayside, that's, uh, you know, people would all often make a trail through the farm fields. They were so big, well, you couldn't walk around them, so people just cut through them, and there would be enough traffic, you would mat down that section. It would com be compacted. And that would be the wayside. Sometimes they were on the perimeter of the field. We we're accustomed to that. Drive out into the country, and the road is right between two fields oftentimes, one on the right, one on the left. We just use asphalt nowadays. They... They just use their feet. So here where the word lands on a compacted heart, a hard heart, uh, Satan's going to snatch it away. Verse 5, some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. When the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root in it, 
because it had no root, it withered away. The stony soil is that, uh, you know, the heart that's just shallow. There's no depth. Everything's on the surface and that's it. There's nothing deep down. And as a result, nothing can get down deep where it needs to go to lay its foundation. And in this case, is the, the roots so that they can feed. Can't grow a crop on rocky ground. The seed germinates. It shows that it's fine. And yet, nothing more happens after that. Nothing good, nothing in the way of life. Still, the ground is not suitable. And without that depth, it cannot survive. How true is that? If you just uh, have the word of God brush up against you, if you're happy with it just for an hour or so, but after that, whatever truths were given to you, they die because you're shallow. Well, you, my audience this morning, I, I, I would think that there are few, if any, who are shallow when it comes to the word, but we engage those outside of these walls. We engage those who are shallow. And it helps to be able to point that out because there are things that someone can do to change the inability to receive God's word. And we are supposed to help them with that. In verse 7, Jesus continues teaching. He says, and some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop. Well, the goal was not achieved crop did not come from this part of the farm field. Of course, the thorns, we hear thorns in Scripture, and it is the emblem of sin. It goes back to the curse. A curse is on the land. It takes plowing and planting and hard work to produce it by the sweat of the brow. Genesis 3, verse 17. This is, of course, at the fall of man into sin. Free will had to be tested. Maybe, uh, again, the, you younger Christians, you have to be tested. Right now, it's mom and dad's religion. And Satan's going to come along and say, is it yours? Do you really love the Lord? Is he yours or not? And he's going to do that by bringing things your way that Christ condemns. Well, Genesis 3.17, this is a microcosm of what happened uh, what happens even now? Then, Adam, uh, then to Adam he said, God speaking to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Pause there, men. I don't ever listen to my wife. Because <laughs> it's biblical. <laughs> and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And of course, the crown of thorns placed upon the, the brow of our Lord, emblematic of the sin and the curse that fell upon him for us. So, in Scripture, emblems of pain are thorns because of sin. It's not random. Why do I hurt? Why do people die? Why do people get sick? Sin. That's why. That's too simple for some. But the fact remains. Some affliction by Satan, be it physical, be it mental, be it emotional, sin. 
Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger from Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. God has left in my life something to stabilize me, and it hurts. That's what Paul was saying. That thorn in the flesh... Sin was involved, not personal sin. I don't believe that was the case that Paul is talking about here. Not that he was sinless. I personally believe, since we're always on, when you're on such a topic, people are curious, well, what do you think it was? And I believe that his, it was his apostolic calling being rejected, being in opposition by the Jews, the people he loved so much. They wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't accept that he saw Christ. And even the ones who had become the Judaizers, the one who had claimed Christ as Messiah, but still wanted to adhere to the law, they hounded him, they, they troubled him. And he had to live with this stuff. And it comes out in his writings, I believe. He wanted to reach them so badly. He had all the evidence, all the proof, and all the love. And yet still, they hounded him. Well, you may have a different view, but weeds can grow anywhere, it seems, though the crop cannot Tall fescue cannot grow anywhere. And wire grass can. But anyway, the thorns, they suppress the crop. Sin suppresses the fruit. Robs it of its space and resources. It's militant. The thorny ground, sin, it's militant. It is aggressive. It is dangerous. It will hurt you. It will stick you. Verse 8. Well, I'll pause there. I remember in boot camp being taught what is the da- most da- one of the dangerous of wounds, the most dangerous of wounds is a puncture wound. And that's why they encourage you not to get bayoneted. <laughs> Verse 8. But other seed fell on the ground, around, and on the... Well, let me start that again. But other seed fell on good ground. I don't know what I was saying. And yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. You, you study this so hard, you want to hurry up and get to the points. And the words are getting in the way. Again, the ground, metaphorically, the heart. The seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop. It's responsive, and it's responsive to in various degrees. And so we are patient with one another. Some will have more fruit than others. And it's not for us to brag or boast. It's us to rejoice in the Lord that there's fruit at all. Because it's one in four if you go with, you know, the ratio here. The good seed was fertile. Not hard, the, the, the soil, the ground, not hard, not shallow, not crowded, but hungry. Receptive. And... Good soil finds Jesus to be true and also others to be false. That is part of the conversion experience. I would question your conversion if you, if you said, I, Jesus is true. But so is, and you start naming other false gods, which is something that plagued Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus said it this way in John 10, most assuredly. And when he says that, it's emphatic. I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so the others are thieves and robbers. He's, I'm it. I am the door. I am the entranceway to eternal life, to heaven, to truth. And so you come to Christ, you say, Christ is true and others are false. And they are not in agreement with him. A hard, shallow, or weeded heart would not receive this, or would receive it only for a moment. Verse 9, and, he's, and we're going to get back to all of these, incidentally, because he's going to get back to them. And he said to them, he who has an ear, let him hear. He felt they were smart enough. Or he wouldn't be saying these things. He felt they could grab it, they could figure it out. They applied themselves. If they opened their hearts, we believe this to this day. We're our teens. I think you're smart enough to be in the sanctuary. I think that what is preached from this pulpit is good for you and that you're able to get enough of it. Oh, you might not get it all, but you'll get enough, especially if you laugh at the jokes. You've got to learn that. Well, what would you rather say? Would you rather me say, well, you know, our team's a little dumb. We don't let them in the sanctuary. They're a little dense. Not at all. Not only do we think you're smart enough, we know you're loved enough. And you love big. Whether you get it or not. You'll get it later. For sure. You want your pastor to push you a little bit. With truth. From scripture. With love. And you want to be blitzed by preaching from time to time. Because your flesh needs to be smacked down. Where else are you going to get it? Texting each other? <laughs> that ain't going to happen. So you come into the house of God and you sit with us. We don't want you isolated away from us where you can just... <laughs> acting like you love it. We want you here with us. We want you to be... On the wall with us. We want you to be in formation with us. Now and forever. You got to work by the sweat of your brow. Just like the rest of us. You think life is hard? Wait till you get my age. Well you don't have to wait that long. So be honored. That the God of heaven. Has put you in a place. Where you can receive the word. Now what's your, how's your heart going to respond to that? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Verse 10. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. You see, so okay, let's go back. In teens, I'm not picking on you. I am rooting for you and fighting for you. Because I know what that punk, the devil, wants to do to you. And the only way to intercept him is to intercept him with truth in the spirit. And whatever I say to you is applicable to adults too. When he, when he was alone, they asked him, if you don't understand something, ask. Here's the template for, for it. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. The key is they were with Jesus. If they were not with Jesus, they could not find out. They all understood the farming and the sowing. They all got that part. What's the point, Jesus? What does it have to do with God? What does it have to do with me and God? 
What is the spiritual application? That is their question. And so he has a sort of a mild rebuke. It's more like a challenge built into his answer. We don't have his tone, but we know him. We know how he talks to us. And so it's safe to say his tone was relatively mild or just very mild. And he said to them, to you it has been given, verse 11, to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. It's given to you. If you're sitting in a church where the word of God is preached, you're being given God's word. To whom? To all who desire to be with him. You've got to love him. You have to love the Lord. And if you don't, just ask. Invite him. Now, he says here, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom. Well, what is the mystery? Well, in Scripture, a mystery is something God has revealed but veiled at the same time to be unveiled at a later time, at a proper point in time. The church, the church is preached in the Old Testament, but it's veiled. Not until you come to the New Testament apostles in Christ is that veil lifted away. And it wasn't done instantly. The church sort of evolved out of Judaism, out of the synagogues. And we see the church in the Old Testament. We today, looking back with the believers in the days of Christ, they saw no such thing. And Christ mentioned the word church, the ecclesia, the, the called out ones. They didn't see it as we see it now. Fuller revelation awaited the writings of the Apostle Paul, the writings of Luke, and the Gospels, and, and, and the preaching that they all did as they moved around the various places that they were sent out to preach. And so a mystery in Scripture is something that God has put out there, and it has to be developed. But you've, you've got to participate. You've got to stay with him to get it. He says, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. They're willfully uh, outside, as the Pharisees were. They, they were disbelievers by choice, not because the facts were not there. You know, the folly of not paying attention to Jesus. It's not worth it. It's better to surrender to him and listen to him. And to expose the hardness of those who are around in those days and these days too, the message is sent in a sort of a cryptic form. God veils it. I give you an example of that in Noah. Noah building the ark. The message was put out there. And God exposed the hard hearts of the people every time a hammer hit a nail. The echo of that strike was a sermon that something is being built to escape something that's coming. You either believe it or you do not. And they rejected Noah. And they had nothing to reject about Noah. Noah lived differently from him. He was a righteous man, the Bible says. They could just look at Noah and say, you know what? This is a man that's not going to steal from you. It's not going to hurt you. He's a righteous man. Maybe. Just maybe he knows what he's talking about. How many times have unbelievers mocked good pastors and people believe the unbelievers? 
that are that, that in in my own experience, I've heard coming from them, it's a compliment. You you almost say. Well, they mock you, and you want to say, well, if you're going to listen to them, go ahead. But I encourage you to listen to those who are encouraging you to listen to Christ. Another example of those who were told, listen, keep hearing, but don't respond in a sarcastic kind of way. An example is Nineveh. Nineveh heard the word and opened their hearts. At least that generation did. What happened after that? Well, they turned into a cruel army that eventually conquered the northern kingdom. So Jesus says in Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Let's pause here a minute. How many of you like to pick on, well, you know, he says it's so mean. Well, he's telling you the truth, but he's so mean when he says it. Consider Jonah. Jonah's sermon was brutal. Nineveh's going to burn 40 days. Nah, 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 nah. That's pretty much what he said. And they repented. They didn't say, you know what, we don't, coming from a Jew too, we don't want to hear this. You mean. They listened to what was being said and they avoided the judgment. And so when he says, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables to expose them, to show they're not against. So the Pharisees, Jesus was saying, look, I'm preaching these things. You know what's going on. You know you're not honest. The people know you're not honest. And you're being called out. What are you going to do with this? When Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea said, we're going to side with you, Jesus. That take, took away all the excuses from all the other ones that sided against Christ. The twisted citizens of Sodom that surrounded the house of Lot, smitten with blindness, and yet they had an opportunity to avoid the brimstone that was coming. You would think, you would think they would say, okay, wait, 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 wait. This is something that's off the chart. Who did this to me? And why? No, they continued in their sin. These, these are facts these are illustrations. These are exposing human behavior when it, its heart is hardened towards God's word. Those in Jesus' day saw the most awesome miracles ever. And they didn't see one or two. They saw so many, they lost track. It began to be expected when Jesus was around, somebody was going to get healed. A miracle was going to take place. And yet, some still accused him of being in cahoots with Satan. And perished in, in their blasphemy. Truth was a mystery to them because they did not care for it. That's who truth is a mystery for. God knows those who want it. He doesn't give us all the answers immediately. Too much information. But he gives us enough. Verse 12 so that seeing that they may see and not perceive, and hearing that they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Sarcasm, straight out. Because we know the Lord is long-suffering, willing that none should perish. God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish. And many other Verses that preach this. this. He is quoting Isaiah at the time of Isaiah's big calling. God said, who shall I send? 
You know, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up a train of his rope, filled the temple. Just this awesome. And he said, who shall I call? Who shall I send? Isaiah said, send me. And God said, okay, here's your message. And it was a negative message. It wasn't, God loves you. And everything's going to work out for you. Well, it will if you love God back. But if you don't, there's a consequence. And so God says, this is what I want you to tell the people. Keep on seeing. Go, no, 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 just keep right on seeing and don't respond. See what happens to you. And so those who sit and hear sermons warning them of the judgment to come, hearing sermons inviting them to receive the grace of Christ, and then they thumb their nose at it. What is God supposed to do with that? He says, see what's going to happen to you. And they don't like the consequence. Well, then change teams. It rubs you the wrong way. Turn around. Face the other way. It's called repent. The world is entering into a similar phase with this increasing apostasy and sin and blasphemy. In our own day, God is exposing them. He's saying, keep on. Don't just keep right on doing that silly thing or repent, especially in places where the gospel has been preached. Look at, look at London. You know how many amazing preachers London was blessed with? Before London, take a place like Ephesus. Ephesus had Paul the Apostle, John the Apostle, Timothy, Apollos preached there. It was a hotbed for teachers of the word. And then Jesus writes to Ephesus and he says, you left your first love. With all those great teachings, you left your first love. You better turn back. Well, Paul talks about this, exposing them, calling them out. These hearts that are hard towards God's word. Second Thessalonians. We read some of this last session. We'll read a little bit more of it this. Now he's talking about Antichrist at first. Of course, this is the great tribulation period. The church is gone now because there's no more she can do. And God has pulled her out. There will still be uh, great tribulation converts, but there will not be a church as we know it. The apostate church will be left behind to be apostate. And she is uh, the woman that rides the beast and then the beast tramples her. And Paul says, listen, the coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist and all that he brings with him, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because... They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. You see, keep on listening and not do anything with it. He continues, Paul does, he says, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So in the end, God is still sovereign. He is still in control. He has given them opportunity, and they have blasphemed him. They have mocked him. They have persecuted his servants. And so he says, there's a consequence for that. We, the church, the believers, are supposed to be part of the process to rescue people from suffering these judgments. It's happened to us. Somebody was involved in our salvation. God sent someone in some way. I, I, was, I got saved reading the scripture, but before that, he sent a Christian to look me in the face that provoked me. And the next thing I know, sweet salvation. <laughs> Verse 13, and he said to them, 
Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? See, there's a gentleness in that. He's, I want you, I'm challenging you. I'm pushing you. How come you don't understand this? I don't want to hear somebody say that to me. I don't, I don't want to say, how come you don't get it? I want them to say, good boy. You're so smart. You got it on the first try. I never had a teacher say that to me. But anyway, he says, how then will you understand all parables? There's more. He's saying, I've got more for you. Well, they were not philosophers, these men. They were not theologians. They were fishermen, but they were hungry and thirsty for all God wanted to give them. And that's why they're with Jesus, hearing him say this thing. Yeah, it's a little, you know, it's, it's, it's a little unpleasant hearing this, but that's what it takes. If they didn't need these kind of things, he wouldn't have given it to them. All this was changing. Through the parables, more people would be reached. We're going to find in heaven so many people that became believers of Christ when he lived that we don't read about. Parables, they grab the listener's attention. They're timeless. In every age, the parable makes its point. They're easy to remember. When I came up this morning and I announced that the title was The Sower, all of you who've been in Christ a while, you knew right away where this was going. The parables reveal truth to those who are spiritually ready to receive it and exposes those not ready. We don't want to lose that part of the lesson. So some two people come to church, two people get hung on a cross. Both of them hear the same message. One submits, the other does not. One goes to paradise, the other does not. It's serious business. You think church is a joke? Some people do. Some think it's a little community center to make them feel, all feel good about themselves. We're here to worship God the way he tells us to worship, and this is part of it. And you don't get it sitting at home on your sofa. You don't get it staying in bed. You've got to come out and get in the trench with everybody else. These parables, they conceal truth from those opposed to Christ, again, to expose it. Solution. What is the solution? Okay, pastor, I'm sitting here in the church. I'm not liking you too much because you're saying all things I don't want to hear. I want you to tell me my flesh can do whatever it wants to do and Christ doesn't care. I want you to tell me things that I hear out in the world. But I don't want you to convict, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. What is the solution then, pastor? Hosea chapter 10 verse 12. Hosea is known as the, the broken hearted prophet. What he went through in his pr private life... God went through with his people. And he reached, he preached in an area where very few people were cared to hear what he had to say. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground. Plow it. If it can't take the seed, make it take the seed. We call it, uh, you know, we amend the soil. He says, for it is time to seek Yahweh till he comes and rains righteousness on you. He makes it personal. Those prophets, man, they were, they were just superstars with the message they had to deliver. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up the hard ground, get rid of the thorns, move the rocks out of the way, and plant the right stuff. Verse 14, now he begins to teach them what it means. He says, the sower sows the word. In a single statement, just like that, he made the rest of it plain. That's all he had to say, really, is 
The sower sows the scripture. I got it. Now I get it. There are certain parts of the heart that's not going to, certain parts of people that aren't going to receive it. I got it. Seeds contain the codes of life. They reproduce after their kind. God set that up back in Genesis. It's not boring reading. It's a fact. It's where everything is going. Seed is not man-made, though we have altered seeds, GMO and stuff like that. We won't talk about that right now. God provides the seed for men to sow. Verse 14 And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. What happens in hell when a demon finds a human being who doesn't believe in Satan? First, there are three cheers. Hip, hip, hooray. He's happy about this one. Then they push the alarm like, like, in a, like an alarm for a firehouse. And, and they rally to that soul. Keep them stupid. Keep them in the dark. If we have any chance of damning their soul, this is going to really do it. You don't believe there's a real devil that hates your guts. Then your heart is hard. And you're not receiving what God says. God says, I believe there's a devil. And I'm telling you there's one. He is called the adversary. The enemy. There's nothing friendly about him at all. If he pretends to be your friend, he's setting you up. And this wayside again, these common fields, compacted, non-responsive, and what else? Vulnerable. To what? Satan, the birds of the air. Matthew adds, he says, and they do not understand. The seed falls on the wayside. Satan comes to pick it up because they do not understand. Why don't they understand? They don't want to be with Jesus to find out. Nowhere is Satan more effective than where the seed is sown. And Mark, he puts that word in immediately. He pounces if Satan finds the word just sitting on the surface and not getting in there, he moves quickly. That's what I was talking about. The alarm is pushed and they rally. You know, the angels, they cheer in heaven when there's one convert. Well, hell cheers in hell when they find someone foolish enough to stick their tongue out at Jesus and say, I don't believe it. Verse 16 these, likewise, are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Nothing again wrong with the seed. It's the ground that it fell on. I um, think of Orpah. In the book of Ruth, the good seed fell on her heart. And yet she went back on her confession to Naomi. At first she said, I'm going with you, Naomi. And then she backed out. But Ruth, fertile heart, stayed in it. Ruth stayed. And we know the rest of the story. These stony ground conversions are in the end no conversion at all. If, if you're struggling, if you're struggling with these truths, I tell you what I do when I struggle I look to get defiant. 
against wrong things. I look to stand up against wrong things as far as I can and let the Lord take the rest. And he usually takes like the 90%. And I encourage you, if you are struggling, muster up that defiant spirit of righteousness that is able to say like David did before the giant, who are you? You dare come out here and talk about God like that. Verse 18, now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Christians who are wealthy have to learn how to steward their wealth because it's not theirs. They are entrusted with it and they have to learn how to use it. If they don't, well, they will, they will fall prey. Not all rich people, uh, they, the ones that squeeze through the eye of the needle, are the ones that squeeze through with Christ. And it's just that, that simple. Um, here's a field overgrown with weeds now and thorns, the emblem of sin. Again, no problem with the soil. It's what's surrounding the, the Word. So maybe you come to church and the Word of God falls on your heart. But then you get up and you go around your buddies. And the Word of God is not in their heart. Sin is in their heart. And they begin to choke out the Word that you got Sunday morning. Until finally you're done. Here he says the cares, the riches, the things. These are the common hindrances. Worry, wealth, and want. If you let worry get on top of you in the wrestling match, you're going to get pinned. If you let wealth get on top of you, you're pinned. And if you let your desires for forbidden things get the best of you, you are pinned again. And not only is it humiliating, it is dangerous. The things of this world to a fault. There, we all enjoy things of this world, but not to a fault. At least we fight it. Luke 21, verse 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. You miss out. It's too late. 2 Timothy 2.4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Soldiers are there to fight. I can keep going, but we need to finish, wrap this up. Okay, one more. Luke 21, verse 34, listen to Jesus. He says, take heed to yourselves. Watch yourselves. When my daughter, my youngest one, goes out somewhere, to, you know, around other kids, when she leaves the house, they say, watch your back, Jack. Take heed to yourself. Pay attention to your surroundings. Have fun, but not too much. And, um, she's learning. And so am I. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life. Take heed. All right, verse... Uh, Actually, read that one twice. Verse 20. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Here is where God's word is not trampled. Here is where it is not restricted. Here is where it is not choked out by wants and worry and wealth or anything else. But it is received. It is kept. It is free. It is thriving. It is a crop. It produces something that supports life. It's not enough to be touched by Jesus. You have to remain by Jesus.
That's the story of Judas Iscariot, is it not? There are consequences to not receiving the word, as I've been saying. Consequences to not knowing God's word. See, if you don't know God's word, Satan still does. And he will steer you into those valleys where he can destroy you. Mark chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says to those who were custodians of the law, he says, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. Why not? They wouldn't break up the follow ground. They had no defiant spirit against sin in their own heart. They accommodated sin in their own heart. What was important to them was what they decided was was important, not what God said was important. Maybe you think that if you side with God, somehow life's not going to be fun. You are a fool if you believe that. How many, well, I shouldn't ask that way. Because I was about to say, how many do you know how many Christians walk around moping? <laughs> Quite a few. <laughs> but there are a lot that don't. 2 Corinthians 6, 7. This is the last of this morning's, then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians 6, 7. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Yet a defiant spirit. The armor of God. I am ready for what's going to come at me. That's what armor means. It means I'm ready to shield myself from the sticks of the thorns. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you lay it out for us, right, plain as day. And we who love you love it. However, we all are challenged And this morning, uh, if there are those who love you here, Lord, that are struggling in their faith, we, of course, would ask that you'd give them a double dose of faith to counter those things that are pecking at them, that are hurting them, that are restraining, dimming the light. Then there are those, Father, that hear the word and seem to have just some sort of repellent sprayed on their hearts where it just bounces off. They know it's true, but they don't want it to be true. And so they sell themselves. We pray that that would stop happening. If there are any here this morning, you need to get it. You need to understand what's going on in your life. And then, Father, there are those that are strong in Christ. May they stay strong. May they get stronger still. May you use them to bring up others and make them strong so that the mighty increased among the righteous. If you're here this morning and you have never opened your heart to God, you have a chance right now. The word of God has fallen upon your heart. What is, what is going to happen after that? Will Satan pluck it away? Will it wither when pressure comes? Will it be choked out because you've got other things more important? Or will it produce fruit? It's up to you. If you would like to open your heart to receive Christ this morning and make this prayer with me, and God will receive you. It's what he wants to do. It's why he died on the cross for us. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I come to you, and I turn away from all others, and I come to you, and I ask you 
to forgive me for breaking your law. There's nowhere else to go. No one else died for me. No one else is good enough to die for me. And no one else is mighty enough to rise again from the dead for me. I ask you from this day forward to be not only the one who saves my soul, but also the one who lords over my life. I give it to you. Now, Father, these things we commit to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.